0: I'm Dave Smythe. And this is the Cyber Empathy Podcast. By taking an empathetic approach to technology, we can create space for positive change and healthy relationships to grow. We share stories of kindness, curiosity, and connection that show how we can all shape online privacy and security. Thanks for being here. Jenny Radcliffe, the People Hacker brings her vivid storytelling and awe-inspiring generosity to cyber empathy. I've been thoroughly enjoying Jenny's book, People Hacker, Confessions of a Burglar for Hire, where she reveals how she used her unique blend of psychological insight, stagecraft, and charm to breach high-security properties and uncover their vulnerabilities. It's a captivating read, that really speaks to how insanely difficult the work of a professional social engineer is. Just like in the book, Jenny brings her wonderful sense of humor to this conversation in which we talk about guiding principles, the ethics of people hacking, the role of emotions, and what we need to teach children so they can safely navigate the overwhelming world we live in. It's time to discover why the only one who can protect you from a malicious hacker is an ethical hacker enjoy jenny's fascinating stories and perspectives there's no one quite like her to just go right into it and say that first of all i'm in awe i'm amazed that i'm able to talk to you jenny so thrilled so lucky oh, no it's my pleasure it's my pleasure of course yeah. We're so lucky to have you in this industry. We're so lucky to have someone like you who is such a great storyteller, who is able to capture all of this nuance and who's able to share all of these experiences in a way that we can all learn from them. I mean, listening to your book was a fantastic experience. Oh, you've,
1: you're very kind, but the thing is, you know, social engineering is one of those jobs. Every job is a story. I'm very lucky in that what I do just create stories and I think the only trick if there is one is sort of remembering some of the details and trying to connect with what people might sort of resonate with within those stories and not make it too much about the job itself it's up for me it's never really just about the job it's about the people I meet and the situations that you see and social engineering jobs physical infiltration particularly Always gives you stories because you know at the end of the day you're either pretending to be someone else in a site, so that in itself is a story, or you're on your own in a building and things happen that that don't happen during the day. So it's lovely of you to say, but I do think I have a massive advantage in that what I do is always a story. You know, if if you can take the time to to tell it in the right way, every job's a story, really.
0: It is, but it also takes a lot of courage to be in these situations and, and work up just the nerve to be in the situations. And <laughs> I recently talked to a team of pen testers who were on their first physical engagement and oh. they were really, really nervous because they're such they're such good, nice people that they have a really hard time pretending to be someone else. It
1: is it and you know, you're fooling people. And that's hard for people to kind of get across as well sometimes you know there's very nice people you're deceiving. the way I always kind of got past that was well, it's better to me than it's the bad guys right it's it's a it's a fire drill and and we've got to make sure that we follow that up and make sure that People understand that they're not being caught out because they're stupid or they've, you know, made anything other than a very human mistake. These are targeted. And it's so cute to to you say that the team was nervous because they're paid to do it. This is the thing I always say. Absolute worst case scenario. These days anyway, we are authorized and paid to do this. So you just produce your letter and say, well done. You got me. This was a test. You spotted it. That's a great job and then the business can learn from it I think back when I started that wasn't the case and if I was caught on some of those jobs it definitely was dodgy but pen testers these days that it's not you know it's a, it, it's a legitimate assignment so they need to not be so nervous I'd love to speak to people about to do the first one I must I must volunteer to do that because you shouldn't be nervous on it you should be a little bit nervous but only that you do a good job
0: I feel like Your entire job is such a strong emotional education. And first of all, I I consider cybersecurity to be a way to really evolve your self-awareness, your emotional maturity, just to grow as a human because it gives you all of these concepts, all of these tools, all of these connections to people from different backgrounds and, and so on. But what you do specifically, I feel is an incredibly intense emotional experience and the way that you talk about all of your formative years in the book and, and all of those key jobs that, that stayed with you is to me has this, this strong emotional component. And I was wondering, how do you hold all of these emotions within you? How have you learned to manage them? Because it is such an important part of your job, but it's also something that comes across a lot from everything that you do.
1: That's such a good question, you know. I'm not often asked that question. Well, the thing is, I did I, I did a lot of work uh, studying emotion, actually, because I studied psychology and body language and, and deception and things, and that all links links to that. The advantage I had, which sounds like a disadvantage, was because, because I wasn't technical, I had to give my – and I never felt that I would be a technical person. You know, I work with such good technical experts and people who's – they're happier with a computer in front of them and code and things. I never wanted to to try and be good at that, right? Because one of the pieces of advice that I think is very good is you should specialize in what you're good at and what you enjoy, right? So I could learn a little bit. And I do know a few things after hanging around, you know, a lot of hackers, but nobody wants a okay hacker. You want to be a great hacker. And I knew that my strength was never going to be on the technical side. So, you know, it was very clear I was going to work with humans and with the brain, right? And how that worked. Humans are emotional beings. So I had to really dig deep into where emotions come from and what they are. And if there was ever commonality in emotions across humans, and you need to do that. If you, if you learn nonverbal communication, you have to learn that because emotional reactions is what we're looking at. So for example, if you look at something like stress, stress presents the same in most humans. It's in different orders and it's in different intensities, but essentially we, we, we go through freeze, flight, fight, and fright. So, you know, if we're looking at those things, I would need to know that so I could judge who I was talking to and interacting with in a job. And that presents physically and psychophysically, right? So I'm looking at all those things. And so to do that, to be able to analyze others, what emotional intelligence is about is, about is first of all, you have to understand it yourself. So I guess when it comes to management, I'm no better than anyone else at managing emotions. That's a very difficult thing for any of us to do. If you're frightened, you're frightened. If you're angry, you're angry. To get those things under control, there are ways to try and manage it. But essentially, if you're scared, you're scared. So we can come down a little bit easier and learn some techniques, but that's a difficult thing to do. But understanding it is useful. So for example, if someone's sad, it means they feel they've lost something valuable. It's a loss of a valued person or thing. So if I know that, then I know if I'm talking to someone and they're sad, then I need to work out what it is they think they've lost and how we can replace that or comfort them about that. Now, those types of things is useful in self-management because I can say, okay, well, why is why am I feeling like this? If you can recognize what that feels like first thing is self awareness then it's self management then it's awareness of others and then managing other people so you're right emotional intensity and emotions generally i think the reason that when you read the book and when i talk it seems to be talking so much about emotion is one because it's manipulated by criminals two it's manipulated by social engineers or at least understood by social engineers but it's i notice those things and write about those things because those are the things i really understand And I had to understand something good because I couldn't understand the tech. And it was interesting to me that I could get, I could see any human being in an emotional state and kind of be able to understand how to pull them out of that state or how to increase it. So for example, in interrogations, if we see stress signs on someone, We don't call them interrogations anymore. We call them intensive interview, actually. (laughs) But when we're doing intensive interviews, if we see that we've got someone in a stressed state, then do we want to keep them in that state to get them to elicitate and to talk? Or do we want to relieve that state? And how do you do that? So it was very useful in the job in terms of dealing with people to be somebody that worked with emotions and understood them. And I think that's why it comes out in the book.
0: You are definitely an expert on the human OS. Another guest called just our entire system of, of functioning. You're definitely an expert on that. And I feel like this topic is finally getting the spotlight that it deserves in cybersecurity. And we're finally reaching a state where we realize that all of the technical solutions that we've devised obviously have limited effectiveness. And tackling this idea of helping humans figure out their way around threats and manipulation and other types of risks is a completely different ballgame, which is much more difficult, much more nuanced, much more difficult to codify into solutions that are scalable because every human is different.
1: Yeah, you can't throw money at the human problem the way you can throw it at the technical problem you know you can invest in a you know a magic box and it will solve some issues but you can't it requires time and focus and attention to really manage humans and I think that partly the reason that it took so long for this to sort of really take hold was because there was a lot of nonsense written about it and spoken about it in the past you know there was stuff about social engineering when I first because I mean, I'm mean i old, so when, I, when the internet first came out and when sort of, I first started working with some people in cybersecurity, I'd look for things about this topic and it would be very basic level, still is a lot of the time and it, there would be lots of assumptions and tropes and things that said, well, humans do this or the users do that. And it, I think it really led the industry astray for a long time. And then there was a point where everybody was a social engineer. You know, I said I can't throw an infected USB in the air without hitting someone who said they were a social engineer. And I think what's happened now is that people say, actually, there are people who can talk to culture or to awareness. And there are people who can, you know, talk about crisis communication and that type of thing. But there are really very few people who I genuinely will consider to be a social engineer, like a proper, that is their expertise anything else they do is the side dish to the main course, right? Whereas in the past, people would say, well, I'm a social engineer, or I do a bit of social engineering. And you'd think, well, no, doing a phishing email does not make you a social engineer. It's a very specific skill set that needed to be defined properly, I think, in the industry. And for people to say, you know, there are elements of that in what I do, but I'm not going to speak to that on a stage or anything else unless you really are a social engineer. Because as the rest of the industry got more educated on and more knowledgeable, I think the industry as a whole realized this is a very distinct subset. It's not something that you just add on. It's a specific thing and it's not the thing that everybody can do. And I think that's why it's getting attention now, because I think some of the nonsense has been sifted out. And some people who used to say that they were social engineers now talk about other things because it was trendy and everyone thought, oh, that's easy. And then you realize, actually, to do it really properly and professionally is like any other skill. You have to. It, it's not easy. It might be simple at times, but it's not easy. You know, and that was one of the things I wanted to get across in the book as well was this is an actual profession. Just because you can pick a few things up and try, which is great if you've got the right you know, ethical mindset, it doesn't mean that this is the thing that you do until it's the thing that you do and everything else is an add-on.
0: You've highlighted a phenomenon that keeps repeating in the history of humankind generally is, is this hype cycle where you have to wait out for the... Trend chasers to to kind of fade into the background, and then if you follow a topic for long enough, I'm talking about from my perspective about this from my perspective as someone who follows people who have stayed the course and really gone in depth into their specialization, into their profession for years and decades and on end, and those are the people you want to follow. I I've, I've learned this from stoicism, and it resonated with me because you you phrased it so well applied to social engineering is that you have a lot to learn from the things that don't change from the people who stayed a course from the built-in human traits that haven't changed in thousands and thousands of years and those are still our biggest unsolved problems this even the things that you work with this lack of ability of the human mind to maintain awareness of itself all the time. It's such a big thing. I don't think we're ever going to be able to solve it because we don't understand the human brain. We're just barely kind of scratching the surface. How does it feel for you? Because you create these experiences that change people, that that change their mindset, that trigger those aha moments where they really feel like they're just taken outside of their context and they're suddenly faced with their own behavior, their own faults, their own blind spots. How does it feel for you to see people react in this way to your work? It's an amazing thing. With the
1: talks, you know, I'd been doing keynotes for so long all over the world. And I just kind of told a little bit about the job and, 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 and what I did. And And what it was and and why it worked. And then some anecdotes as well, that people love the anecdotes. And they always said, and I wasn't surprised in one way that people love the anecdotes because I can see that the job is interesting. But bear in mind that I'd never really spoken about it before a few years ago and told the stories of the jobs before in in the way that I started to do as a keynote or as just a talk. And so at first it was like people just were like, oh my God, I love that story you know that job is amazing and 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 it wasn't a surprise because I knew it was great but the, the intensity of it and the amount of people who said that was a pleasant surprise people think it's me creating those experiences but I feel like I'm really I'm just the person who's who's telling the story of, of the people involved in the in the job so in some ways it's the people outside of me that create this and make this these stories funny or or, or whatever so there's that and of course, I focus on people a lot because that's what I've always had to do. But I think the thing that really took me by surprise was the positive reaction to the book. Because you write a book, you know, and I wrote, there's a lot of stories that I've told in keynotes. I didn't tell them in full in the keynotes. You don't have time. It was just, you know, people knew things like putting the the notice on the door of the factory and them opening the door for me. They knew that story, but they didn't know everything behind it and the people I work with. And I had to sketch those characters and they're not characters, they're real people. So I apologise when they listen to this, that we all keep getting, I keep getting called a character. So when I was talking to TV people and film people, they were like the character of Jenny. I'm like, it's not a character. (laughs) This is me, I'm real. But you know, obviously it's a character in as much as it'll be on the screen, it will will be a character. But I had to sort of put emphasis on the other people in the story. So I, I felt that I told it more fully. Now, I knew people liked the stories of the jobs and I knew people were fascinated with my job. So what I did was I picked sort of 12, 15 jobs that I'd have sort of either spoken about or that were different in some way. Some of them I'd never spoken about that just showed the range of social engineering and what what that experience doing that role was. So I just picked different ones and I knew that they kind of liked that, but, but what was lovely was people said things like, this was an easy read, this was an exciting read. That was the thing, or I, or it was well written. I mean, a lot of so many people, really people I respect, said this is so well written. That for me was the nicest thing, because, like I say, I know they're gonna enjoy my job. My job is interesting. I see that it is, but it's it's the fact that they said I wrote it well. That was the nicest thing, and I wrote it specifically so that people could read it quickly. And that's because of one of the things that you said before is that we're all very distracted easily, me as well, these days. We've all got a thousand things, we're busy. And if you get fed up or bored, we can reach for the phone, watch any movie that's ever been made, read any book that's ever been written. So unless something holds your attention and moves quite quickly, it probably wouldn't have done as well. So I wanted to raise it so that people picked it up read the story even if they read it a chapter at a time and just said oh that's great and didn't get bored that was my goal to write it and it was so nice for people to come back and say I read this in a weekend or I couldn't put this down or this rattles through I mean I had one of the big newspapers in England say this is a, a rattling rip-roaring read or something like that and that you know, you, you you read through it really quickly that was a goal and I was pleased that I achieved that but people have been very kind and very generous about the whole thing and um. I'm eternally grateful for the support of uh, the security and the cybersecurity community because they got behind it straight away and supported me as they always have.
0: We're extremely lucky to have you as an author and to have Someone who who writes so well, someone who communicates so well in this industry, these are incredible things. And, And to me, the book, the fact that I listened to the audio book, because I saw that you narrated it and I was like, yes, I want this. I definitely want to listen to this. Aside from reading it, and I, I just have this distinct feeling that I, I didn't want it to end. Oh. <laughs> I, I Good. That means that that
1: maybe that means there should be another one because as I say, I estimate. I can't say exactly, but it's about six hundred physical infiltrations. If I take an average over a year, some years were more, some years were less. There's about six hundred jobs, and I kept. This is an exclusive, but I kept diaries. So I've always kept diaries on everything I've done. And I literally just picked like those stories that I knew I could obscure some of the clients and the details, but would resonate. But it was hard to pick those 12, 15 stories, however many it was, out of all of the stories. And this is one of the beauties of, of looking at the TV show because we can, the beauty of fiction is that I can pick the stories that, that were still true, but we can obscure details that, that for security reasons I couldn't put in the book.
0: To me, it is fantastic that your work becomes this product of the culture, because one of the essential things that makes cybersecurity interesting to me is the culture behind it, the ethics behind it, the hacker manifesto, all of the kind of even pop culture bits and pieces created by movies or TV shows that have taken this job and this role outside of the confines of the industry that have made it interesting that has this has led to young people taking an interest in cybersecurity and in hacking and eventually becoming great professionals the cultural aspect of it to me is incredibly important because it can permeate different layers of our society and we need to me ethical hackers are the people who lead cybersecurity. They push cybersecurity forward. They ask for more. They kind of test the boundaries and and just constantly push them a little bit to make sure that we're growing. We're not becoming complacent. We're not becoming just about commercial things. We're not just an industry that makes money. We're an industry that tries to help people. And going back to that ethical code to me is incredibly important and you've built, I mean, the cultural product that your work is becoming taps directly into that. It it highlights the ethics of it, which to me is incredibly important. And it is this discipline that we need to bring back in terms of importance and as a tool for becoming better professionals and better humans. And it's also something that entertains people. (laughs) Yes, It's entertaining for people to watch. It's not entertaining for you if you're falling off
1: roofs and being chased by guard dogs and things. But yes, people seem to be entertained by the idea of me breaking
0: my leg. I know it, it sounds uh, a bit maybe cynical at times, but I feel like this kind of approach is really, really important. And our ability, our ability, and I talk about a cybersecurity community, to communicate these things is what will determine, is what determines the effectiveness of anything that we try to do, of anyone we try to persuade uh, from getting budgets to doing communication campaigns to whatever it is. So what I wanted to emphasize is that your book begins with one of the key ideas of your work, which is incredibly important. It's so simple, but so important that security only works if you use it. And to me, when I listened to that, the thought that came immediately after, because I was thinking about the podcast is that empathy only works when you use it, but we don't really know how to. So I was wondering, where is the empathy in hacking people? Where does it sit within your toolkit, within your ecosystem?
1: Well, there's a lot to unpack, but I think one of the things that the cybersecurity community and I'll get to it specifically what you're talking about on empathy in a minute but one of the things that we need to remember as a a community is we're actually it's quite a powerful skill that our community has if you put it together we really can make or break people and I'm talking about technical hackers there particularly the culture that we live in now and the times that we live in now I don't think we've even realized as a community just how much power there is. So, for example, I was speaking to a client the other day. Now, that client is on behalf of another client who's a high net worth person. They said that that high net worth person felt that because they had money, they were kind of immune to being hacked. And then they were hacked. And, you know, and then we could kind of came in to manage different parts of that investigation and, and, and the protection of the, that person and their family and their business. Now, what I said to them was the only thing that will protect you from being hacked by a, a good hacker is another hacker so we can tell you put this tech in place we can give you some education on social engineering but essentially and not me but you need someone on the team no one's immune and then what you really do and it's almost a battle of the titans right It's, it's the good hacker against the bad hacker it really is that kind of almost biblical battle right at that level because money won't protect you if someone's got you in their sights What will protect you is some tech alongside some education and and constant kind of vigilance. And I think that's the thing that that comes into play when when we talk about empathy is that I always knew, not always knew, but I came to know how powerful it was to really be able to understand people that well and, you know, constantly educate yourself on different things. So I I looked at training in lots of areas in, in illusion and hypnosis and linguistics and all these different areas or with the idea of I've got to know people really well, but the thing that I knew best was the con artistry side of it as, as well. So I studied that, and, and I think what happens then is, is that you make a choice and you think, I can see how not everyone, but you know, for a lot of people, this would work. I could persuade you this way, I could trick you that way, or I could use this and not do that, right? And I could use this to try and help people and stop this. I think that's where empathy comes in because. If you make the choice not to hear people, and it's not an easy choice for me—not not so not much not to hear people, but to, to be a good person, to not steal the picture off the wall, to not just say I'll oh, sort it, and kind of persuade my way into—I mean, I do still go persuade my way into parties and events and things I'm not invited to sometimes. If I'm in, so I'll give you an example. I was in the US and I spoke at an event but my flight was a day later right so I wasn't leaving that evening I was leaving the following evening so I had an evening to myself and a late flight the following day with a lie-in and a late checkout. what do you do I go to the bar I order a drink and you know I feel like lots of the books be of bars ordering drinks but anyway I ordered a drink and some food and I'm sort of sitting there and a guy came over to me who'd been at my talk, right? So It wasn't creepy or anything, been at my talk and he was in the same position his flight was until the next day. So what are we going to do? We're going to sit and have a drink and eat some chicken or should we see if there's something else we can do? And in the hotel, there was another conference and they had one of these fabulous corporate evenings with like a casino and an auction and all these things. And I said to this guy, who I'd only met at the talk, should we go to that party? And he's delighted, right, because he's never done anything like that before. And he's like, what do you mean, sneak in? I said, yeah, we'll just blag our way in. I said, be fine. We don't we'll take anything, but we'll just go to a party as opposed to sit at the bar. And we went and he loved it, right. And he was channeling a persona and everything. And he was doing really well on the casino. It wasn't real money. It was a toy casino. right? And then, But he ended up winning a drone, a really expensive drone in the auction. <laughs> because as you go in, you get they took a thing. I don't know how it worked. So apart from things like that, and just to say that I did sort of know someone at that, so I knew it would be okay. Apart from things like that, am I ever going to use it to be a bad person? And it's a struggle not to do that. And I think that's where the empathy comes in, because what you have to think is the consequences of me using this, even if it seems quite benevolent, could be huge. You pick a side, you're either here to help people and have integrity, or you're not. What empathy does is, I've seen the devastation that even little things like someone's Instagram attack, um, account being attacked or a house being burgled, I've seen what that does to people. And I don't want to be someone who, who causes that. I want to be someone who helps prevent that and limit the damage if it happens. But you can only do that with empathy. The problem with empathy is the reason people find it so difficult is because when there's a situation where there's a difference of opinion or when there's a problem, humans want to blame someone now I've done hundreds and hundreds of training courses on negotiation and persuasion and influence I still do a couple a year for only certain people but what I say is sometimes no one's to blame or sometimes someone's made a mistake we attack before we understand in our society we're all guilty of it because it's easier to shout at someone and blame someone than to say this system's imperfect we need to fix it or maybe nobody is being malicious maybe it's just not a great situation how can we work it out together we are losing I feel that we are losing our cooperation if it was ever really there what we don't cooperate as well and that might be that sort of speaks to social media influencers and it speaks to mobile workforces and working in isolation more but we we don't cooperate well as a species, I think. Not always anyway. I mean obviously we do sometimes, but like when we do, it's so beautiful and we all love it. But a lot of the time we compete and when we compete, we lose empathy because you can't compete well with someone that you understand where they're coming from.
0: Empathy is definitely the part of the a generous mindset, part of the mindset that says that there's enough for everyone that yes, we can compete with each other, but in knowing that there's enough for everyone. You see, what people think is,
1: they think it means sympathy, right? So I've done negotiations, criminal negotiations with bad people. And I don't sympathize with where they come from at all. These are violent people. These are criminals. These are people who cause hate and harm to, to people. Cruelty is unforgivable. But I have to try and understand where that comes from for me to solve that problem so I can empathize with someone's position even if I don't sympathize with their position and these are the skills I honestly think Andrea these are the skills that we should be teaching kids because whilst in the meantime you know we're we're forcing children to to do something like maths until they're 18 no one's saying mathematics isn't obviously incredibly important but you can't say there's no time to teach people psychological skills Negotiation skills these are the things that talk people off a ledge. These are the things that resolve situations and stop conflict. so I think and I gave a TED talk on it, but I really think the curriculum that we teach kids is lacking in basic skills, budget skills, you know i I, I spent hours in school learning things like algebra, and no one taught me about filling in a tax return or saving for a pension, so you know these are the things that I think. Are really important when it comes to actually living in the world that we're in now, which is faster paced, more complicated. We need more ana- analytical skills. And I do think it comes back to what we first spoke about a little bit as well, which is why people say, Oh, I'm this, I- I'm an expert in this, I'm an expert in that. And then the next week I'm an expert in something else. It's because they they're not analytical. They're just like hanging on to every trend. And if it was if we were in the, you know, the cookery industry, that would be quite bad because someone's going to get a bad meal but in the security industry when someone says they're an expert in something and they're not lives data information money is really at risk it's very serious so I think it's a gap
0: there is. And, and thank you for speaking to that. I feel that that's why sometimes we often look to countries in Northern Europe, which tend to have a different educational model that's very based on teaching cooperation, on doing things, doing activities together. And Finland, and, I think. Yes. I think Finland, Finland held held a,
1: a very highly considered because not only do they teach analytical thought and things in school I think although I'm not sure what they call it but they actually have people who analyze the news and things as well and and a public you know will say well this this source is reliable or this source isn't reliable or think about you know who wrote it and what are they trying to achieve obviously that comes from geographical proximity to other countries in some ways but you're right it's you know there's different ways that we can there's some skills that are urgently required and they're urgently required in cyber just as much as they are in wider society, for
0: sure. I mean, our, let's say, digitally powered culture, I feel like cybersecurity has a role here to create literacy. Literacy in how we interact with technology, with how we use it, with how we understand its effect, its impact, its consequences, but also the good things that we can use it for. And Without this understanding, it's got just going to take over like we already see it doing. And in the midst of all this, taking time to think about ethics, to think about empathy, to think about critical thinking, I feel that these are not... People still see them wrongly as soft skills, which is something that puts them in an area where yeah, that's nice to think about, but not entirely necessary. But just like you mentioned, they're actually vital for how we function, for our health, physical, mental, emotional, and so on. For I, how, I, how, I do how, love it when someone healthy. says soft skills to me. Mm. <laughs> it,
1: it, it, just, it just sort of makes me smile a little bit. And it's that whole thing of like, oh, I had a guy, I did a call with a guy and he, and he gave me this whole technical spiel. And he said, so, you know, social engineering is just, it's not going to get past our tech. And I said, as, I, as I'm talking to you, I know i get past, you know, because your arrogance is your weakness, right? You've just literally given us the way in. But, you know, you must never, you can't think like that. You've got to think of, fundamentally, you're dealing with people. Now, however technical you are there's still someone somewhere that you're going to interact with and you need to understand that and if nothing else understand yourself and your motivations and what it is that gets you out of bed in the morning and if you get out of bed in the morning because you want to climb Everest and hack a bank then how do you channel that into positivity because on the negative side and I've known plenty of people who've been criminals and have gone down the wrong path in my time it, it doesn't end it just doesn't end well no, a guy called Brett Johnson, great, great podcaster, great storyteller, formerly FBI's, one of the, the most wanted cyber criminals, who's now uh, produces this great show. He, he always says, you know, it, he said, he gives a presentation and he shows all these pictures of former associates who were criminals, and he says, you know, most of them are dead. If they're not dead, they're in prison. It doesn't end well. So find out what you love and what you're skilled at, and then find a way to channel that into positivity so that you have a happy life, right? And, that, and it's such a huge thing, but it sounds so simple. Well, do what I love and get a happy life. That's, that's what it's about. Really, that's what you need to think about.
0: You're not going to be happy if you hurt people, not in the end. It doesn't end well. And, and if you depart from your internal structure, from your set of principles that guides you, even if you never kind of articulated them on paper or somewhere else, I was wondering if there are any experiences where you were on the receiving end of of an empathetic behavior that have helped you understand what your principles are, have helped you understand this, understand or define kind of what your motivation is and and what you want to do with the skills that you've continued to develop.
1: I don't know about, you know, if I can think of a thing of of like an incident that's like the instant that stands out where where someone was very kind of understanding of me and, 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 and it kind of was, it was a light bulb moment. But I do think that one of the things that people talk about mentors, I've some people who I see as mentors in a way, but I, mentor's not the word I'd use. I kind of have a circle of people, sort of in my head I call them the board of directors. They are the people who I can go to who are always very patient with me but will tell me, if I'm putting a foot wrong so for example I'm offered lots of projects and things in tv and, and other things and, and like the temptation is always to take it because it's tv right it sounds like fun, and I've got people around me saying "No, don't do that and they're right you know but my ego wants to say yes because of course you want to be on telly you want you want your family to go oh your family and friends oh there's Jenny on telly so I only do certain things but it's people who, who say I will say to you I know you want to do that but you shouldn't or I know you're scared to do this, but you, sh- but you should. Putting that team around you is very, very important. So I think we kind of get lost in the term mentor. I don't think mentor really is what we mean. At least for me, it was just more having this trusted people who I go to for certain things and I stay in touch with. But I know if something comes, up, if there's a financial thing that I don't understand, I'll go to this person. If there's a business thing, I've got a few people that I go to and say, look, from a business point of view, I'm not very good at this, so what would you do? I think as you get older, and we sort of spoke about it before, it's really about understanding what you are good at and almost staying in your lane. And I don't mean not take risks, but saying I'm in this lane and I recognise that there are other people who are better at other things than me. So going to them and then letting them understand if you've done something and, 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 and you know that's not right and letting them sort of tell you. So taking the criticism and reaching out I think there's a tendency, especially when you run your own com- company and especially when you're good at something to try and do everything and to try and and to feel like you are right all the time. And what comes with maturity is going, I'm wrong a lot of the time and I don't know. There's so much I don't know that it's like I, I wish I wish I didn't have to sleep right because i'd love to you know to learn all these things but that's the, the reality is this so now i'm going to bring these people in so i don't think i've had an incident where that stands out where someone just showed me empathy and it was game changing i think i've been lucky to have people who made an effort to understand me and then made an effort to to guide me in an empathetic way which
0: made me better at what i did that's a precious gift that's a very precious gift that we can offer others And the thing that you mentioned, I I remember a friend of mine telling me this. She's a coach and she read about this framework where to learn or to evolve the fastest, we need to be in three roles at the same time. We need to teach someone, we need to learn from someone, and we need to have trusted peers that are going through similar experiences as us and that can provide this supportive, trusted space where we can grow uh, and where, and they can also keep us accountable, of course, because that's a huge element. So what what you mentioned and and the way that you you shared this part of your life really reminded me of this concept of of having this group that grounds you that becomes sort of a second family or perhaps a, a, a spiritual family in the sense that it's the family you choose. New. It's yeah. the family you
1: choose, but I do I do think that you need to be careful with who you trust so the way that i see it is i have i'm you know i can go almost anywhere in the world call up someone from the hacker community from the cyber community and have a beer it's that is just that is one of the loveliest things about this community is that you know that you can do it and so there's going to be a b-side or there's going to be a hacker group kind of anywhere and they'll probably if you get going yeah you know i'm here i'm in your city and i'm you know it would be great to have a beer Obviously, you've got to be very careful, especially you know if you're on your own. But like you know, generally speaking, we can do that. But then there's people who support you from a business point of view. So I've got like business people who I can talk to. I've got business friends. That's another circle. So it's kind of like security. It's like the onions, you know. And then I have a very close knit group, not necessarily in the business, who don't care how successful I am or not, and absolutely will tell me. If I'm being a dick, sorry, you probably don't want to use that. But, you know, first principle, you are now being stupid for something or now you're being arrogant. And they don't care if the book does well. And they don't care if there's a TV thing. Oh, they just don't care, right? They're happy for me, but they, they don't care because they'd be just as happy if I worked in a sweet shop and was happy. And that is not easily found. I think one of the things in our industry that we, we build gods, we put people on pedestals and we worship at the pedestal and people really don't think carefully enough and really analyse what they're seeing. Those people are not necessarily someone who who's going to be there for you or look up to you or support you. That's just the community. That's just social media. It's important to really see different people with different things and really look after that privacy, that inner privacy. So one of the things I would say that, that people realize when they talk to me is I am there's tons of interviews I always give people an interview if they ask for it nearly always because I did a podcast and people gave me their time and I was blown away by the generosity of people in the industry with hundreds of thousands of followers who came on my show I just couldn't believe it and even if they didn't have that many followers it was just someone just came on they gave me their time so I've spoken a lot I've done lots of interviews and, and articles over the years but actually people don't know that much about me I mean, personally, the book is the thing that gives you the, the most information. But even the book doesn't really tell you that much about me now. And I think that's important as well. You've got to guard part of yourself and just, and we're in security, right? We should all be paranoid. We should be guarding that little inner privacy. Share bits of yourself with people, but the real you, it's people who don't care. They don't care whether you look great or you look awful. Or they don't care. But they'll tell you you don't look so well. But people, do you see what I'm saying? It's, it's, there's too much kind of sycophancy and there's too much, there's a different life online and a different line with people's public persona.
0: It really is. And and thank you for sharing that. I feel that's such an important point about learning how to be vulnerable with certain aspects of yourself. And I mean vulnerable in the sense of the psychological vulnerability, not the, not the other kind of vulnerabilities that we talk about all the time. Learning to be vulnerable with specific elements that are essential to human connection and that you feel comfortable with just showing people and then keeping that that core private. And that's, that's so powerful, so important. And one of the key things that cybersecurity can actually teach the outsiders, industry outsiders, in a world that glorifies oversharing and that builds influencers and such, especially based on this, but this is not natural, nor is it healthy.
1: The security industry we should know as a community not to trust everything we see online, but I see people, and you know, and we should, we also have, I think, a good awareness of mental health issues in our community as well. But I still see people, and I think, oh, what do you, you don't share things on Twitter that you know? Think about what you're saying on Twitter. Not everyone who smiles is a good person, not everyone who follows you. And, you know, I see some people and like, they, you can see what they're doing. They've got podcasts or whatever they've got. And you see them pick an influencer or, or, you know, someone who's well known and start to like every post and then retweet every post and then comment on post, And it's just such a cynical build. And then, you know, you see people fall for that. And I just think that we as a community should lead the way in terms of just privacy, just a little bit of personal awareness, all of those things are helpful because then, when you're building a business and you're building what you love, if that comes crashing down for whatever reason, so you know, Elon must get rid of Twitter altogether or whatever, you have still got something. Whereas I think people just overshare too much, and it's weird. I, I think it comes from a confidence the security community has that we can deal with anything because we think we'd recognise it and we know what to do for hacked and all the rest of it. And I think it's just better to hold some of that back.
0: It absolutely is. Thank you for all of your stories, for all of your wisdom, for all of the humor, for everything. To me, you are such a great, well-rounded person to learn from. Oh well, I'm, having... you know
1: you're lovely, and but you know we've all got. I'm sure that, that I'm glad it comes across that way. I'm sure that there's a million things, but no, it's lovely. It's lovely to be interviewed by someone who's who's asking such clever questions. Because those a lot of the questions you've asked me in this conversation has gone in a direction that you know, a lot of the time they don't. So it was a real pleasure to talk to you, Andra.
0: I appreciate it so much, Jenny. Same here. And I would love for uh, everyone who's listening to listen or read your book to look. Oh, I can't wait for the TV version of it. I cannot wait. And I can't wait to see what many other things you have to teach us. Thank you for being here. And thank you for being so generous with everything.
1: Oh, it was my pleasure entirely. Thanks so much for having me on the show.
0: Thanks for joining us. For show notes and links from this episode, head to cyberempathy.org, where you can also find resources to guide you to a healthier, more comfortable relationship with technology. And if you have a question for us, or if there's a topic you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you too.